Yeah, I mean, I think you, you can be both. It can be the both and. You can be humble and you can still own your greatness. It doesn't have to be, like we, I think we have a lot, of, a lot of times in our society, we have this notion of like narcissism as be, people who own greatness. And narcissism is a much more complex psychological phenomenon than that. That's not how it develops. Like, um, and you're not gonna become narcissistic by thinking you're great at certain things um, and to being able to own that. It's also at the same time, very important to be able to own the things you're growing at. I'm still struggling. I'm still growing. I don't hide that. I'm always talking about the ways in which I actively struggle or like, you know, because I think it's important. You can be both. You can own greatness and struggle. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Path Distilled. And we're so excited today. We have Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. She's the author of Own Your Greatness, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome. So welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about kind of your background and what you're currently doing? Sure. So I am a psychologist and executive coach, and I have a consultancy that works both with individual clients and executive coaching, um, and also does diversity, equity, and inclusion work and leadership development work um, at the organizational level. Um, and so um, my practice, been in practice about 15 years, um, largely focusing on um, in my individual work, mid-level managers and executives, C-suite executives, um, and you know, in my my organizational work is varies. It's nonprofits, for profits, educational institutions. So it's, it sort of varies. It's more about sort of the issue than than the actual institution. And so, can you take us back and kind of how you first got involved in your career path, and then also at some point how you got involved in looking at imposter syndrome in particular? Sure. It's a bit of a windy road. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I, I initially kind of go into college thinking I'm gonna be a pediatrician and then sort of uh, do really horribly in the sciences, um, <laughs> shockingly, because I did really well in high school, but in college, it just sort of like, it just tanked and fell off the cliff. Um, and it, you know, my parents didn't go to college, so um, they weren't super helpful in sort of figuring out what to do next. They just were like, just pass. I was like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and so I had to sort of figure out a pathway because I was, I was literally failing out of college. Um, I had to figure out a pathway to stay in school and sort of figure out what I was going to do next now that I had this dream that was like my dream since I was like six. Um, and then I, so I took this like inventory and was like, well, what am I, what am I decent at? What am I doing well in school? And it was English. And so I changed to an English major, which my parents were quite unhappy with my my father would always say, you speak English. I don't understand what the point is. What are you learning in school? Um, and so he was very, very confused about what I was going to do with this. Um, and like the, the joke in the family, like he'd introduce me to other people and he'd be like, yeah, she's like a history major or something. I don't know. It was, he never, ever got it right. Um, and so I, then I thought I would be a writer. And so I, you know, pursued, did really well in my English studies and, and thought I'd be a writer. And, um, as I was sort of in my senior year of college, there were all these like really fun prose writing classes and really small workshops. And we I took a workshop with a writer who was published multiple times. It was really exciting. And she like eviscerated me. It was, I spent a semester getting like destroyed like every time I wrote it was, and it was really demoralizing. And it, it really made me feel like I, I don't think I can be a writer. Um, I need to figure something else out now. 
And so I graduated from college and then sort of was in this like kind of confused place again and wondering like, what am I gonna do? Um, and I thought again, what am I good at? And I happened to be an RA and I thought, oh, well, I liked helping people. There were a couple of kids who had, had struggles. I helped them get into mental health work. I was like, maybe I'll be a counselor or a psychologist. And my dad put me in touch with someone at his EAP who was a counseling psychologist. And she told me all about counseling psychology, which I didn't even know anything about. And she was like, I happen to be an English major undergrad and I just got a master's degree and then got a doctorate. And she was like, why don't you just try a master's degree out and see if you like it. And so I was like, okay. And actually with a master's degree in Massachusetts at the time, you could actually practice. Um, so I was like, well, if I don't want to go on, I could always just take the master's degree and practice. And so I got the master's degree and just fell in love. I mean, it was like finding home. It was everything felt like, you know, it, they saw me, I saw them. It was just like, you know, it just felt like career home. And, you know, that's when I decided I'll pursue the PhD because I really do want to kind of become a psychologist. And, um, and I, and then, so a lot of people don't know what a counseling psychologist is as in comparison to a, a clinical psychologist. And the difference is like our field sort of emerged in the 1950s um, when people were coming home from World War II and were kind of going through vocational rehab and our field sort of created the testing and, and the career kind of uh, development work to help people understand what to do with their, their experiences in the military and figure out how to kind of reintegrate back into civilian society. And we were the ones who developed career testing and uh, like that's, so that's why I ended up being a kind of a career executive coach. People are like, wow, how do those things go together? It's very, very natural for a counseling psychologist because we get trained, we do testing work, we have externships and career. Many of us don't pursue it because we don't see the connection to kind of the individual work that we, we love so much. But I, I actually didn't really like it myself either. Um, but my husband, um, who I met while I was working, it was his passion. And he helped me to see how the, the professional was personal and the personal professional. And so I think that's sort of where I started to really, because I always was interested in identity work. And so that's sort of like where I, I, I became sort of like connected to the, the career. So were the feelings of your own personal feelings of imposter syndrome, are they starting, have they emerged at this point or does this come? They were later? always there. <laughs> they I were probably always there. You, you mentioned, you know, kind of like almost failing out of school and not doing well in the sciences. And it almost, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost didn't sound like that hit you or hurt as much as you called it being kind of like eviscerated, you know, with this writing. So did you feel those quote unquote failures differently? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think that I, I, I felt them equally as painfully. I think the one, the second one feels scarier because it was like, oh, well, a lot of people get derailed the first time, but then getting derailed the second time, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, I don't know if I could do this twice. Um, but I think like, you know, the first time I remember like having a situation in a lab, it was in a chem lab and there was a hole in my, in my test tube and I was working with hydrochloric acid the hydrochloric acid spilled all over my hands from the mm -hmm. hole in the test tube. I had to be like, you know, put into like these chemical areas where they have to spray it down. It was really horrible. And I remember them telling me like, you're going to have to redo the entire lab. The lab was like three hours. And I was so burnt out and failing. And, do and I remember walking home to my dorm and like getting to the, getting to a landing. I was on the third floor, I was on the second floor landing. I just laid down on the landing and just start crying for like an hour on the landing so it was it was as bad um it just you know it just was it, it just felt a little different where that felt like it was all about me like I was the one who caused the problem 
this felt like it was somebody else telling me I, could, I didn't belong, which felt very sort of different. I was actually excelling and doing really well, but somebody was telling me, you really are not going to make it here, um, despite what everything's telling you academically, you're not going to make it, um, which felt very different in a lot of ways. It felt in some ways like it's, you know, in some ways when I was younger, it was like, okay, I can do the sciences. I, there's evidence and there's proof. Like I'm, it's, there's, it's clear. Um, where in English, it was like, I was doing really well and I was getting accolades. And then someone told me, no, you're a fraud. Like you are a fraud. You, you can't do this. And it, it was, it was sort of worse in that way because it felt like I thought there was a possibility here. And now you're telling me it's, I, I am a fraud, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very painful experience. I will tell you this. Um, so I, I was working on a manuscript at the time um, about two you know, older ladies. The, 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 it was about like spinster sisters. It was, that was the sort of like the thematic piece of it. And um, traveling the country, that was, it was, that was sort of the, 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 the theme of the work, the work that I was working on. When I, when I, that a year later, I went back to Boston to, to start graduate school and was in, was in a Barnes and Noble and was curious about what this author was writing. Um, and was she put out anything else? And she actually put out the, the, the book called, she put out a book called Spinsters. So in essence, she stole my work. Wow. Um, and so it was a very useful moment for me because in my, I remember I was in the, I was in the Barnes and Noble with my sister and she was like, she had read the story and she was like, oh my God, this is your story. And, and she's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm not going to do anything. Cause you know, I, I feel like I'm on the, I'm on the right path. You know, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And so in essence, she derailed me and it, it felt really personal and, but it feels like it, it was meant to be, you know? And, yeah. and so even in my experience, people that have never experienced imposter syndrome might experience it once they begin grad school. Um, was it compounded having experienced beforehand or did how did that work for you yeah I mean I think it you know my first experience in grad school it did not I, I was so happy and I was like in love and like everyone you know like I my supervisors were amazing and I was just like living in some nirvana land and it, so it did not <laughs> I didn't feel it then very much um it, it was in in my PhD program that I started to feel it <clears throat> and I think it was because it was a very different experience um it was very competitive um it was very you are not good enough you will you know you always have to constantly prove yourself like um even as you're like fifth year like you know you're, they're still like you're still not good enough um and it was just a very toxic environment and that environment i think it really exacerbated my imposter syndrome tremendously and i i i think it just lit it on fire you know well, not to make light of imposter syndrome, but I think it was about seven years after I graduated with my PhD that I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I always yeah. tell my grad students, I'm like, it was like 10 years into my career that I was like, I think I'm pretty good at this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, because I think, you know, that's a very interesting kind of misconception with imposter syndrome. It's like you keep thinking the next accolade is going to make it better. And in essence, it doesn't. Like, no matter what the accolade is, like, I have an Ivy League PhD. Like, it, it didn't. I felt as, as much of an imposter with that degree that I did without the degrees, you know, so. And so what led you to start focusing so much on this as a line of work, I guess? Well, I mean, I clearly, you know, I clearly was drawn to other people with similar kinds of experiences from me. So a lot of people, and people were drawn to me, I think, because I would like, express it or write about it. So I think... I had a lot of clients who, you know, struggle with imposter syndrome and it was my favorite population because I just felt like, 
you know, you're a superstar and all we have to do is help you to understand you're a superstar and to live in that experience as opposed to live in this like shadow of doubt about who you truly are. And so it just was, it felt so, that work felt so exciting and so great because you're just like kind of helping people understand who they truly are. And it just, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so I was writing about it. So I was writing about it here and there and sharing it like, you know, blogs and different things. And then my publisher, my editor had come to me and said, oh, you know, we see what you're writing. We see what you're doing. You seem like the, per we're gonna, we want to write this book on imposter syndrome. You seem like the perfect person for it. And so it sort of came to me as a result of sort of what I was putting out in the world about the things that I loved. And I only know of one other book. I read, um, are you familiar with The Secrets? I'm sure you must be familiar. <laughs> the Secrets of Highly Successful yes. Women. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> My male clients, when I recommend that one to them, are like, really? You want me to read that? So I'm excited <laughs> to like, have I another. I especially want you to read that. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to have another book to recommend now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are not that many written about it. The topic's really, you know, it's 40 years old. It's like, it's not a new concept. Um, it was, you know, kind of found, founded by two psychologists um, in, in Georgia and they were working at college counseling center. Um, and they started to realize like, look at these women, they're so accomplished and smart, right? Um, but why do they all feel like they're frauds? Why do they all work so hard to try to prove that they're competent? And then they started to kind of put together this idea of this phenomenon, the imposter phenomenon um, that they thought was only in women, but it, it's, you know, most of the research finds that it's, it's, it exists in both, um, that, you know, it's just that it shows up sometimes differently. And so do you think that um, as I've gotten more experienced and seasoned, I've, it's somewhat comforting personally to know that most people, if not all people have experienced it. Uh, but then it's also kind of uh, disheartening in a sense that it's almost like, well, many people never escape or will always have some level of thinking that. Have you contemplated yeah. both sides of that before? Yeah. I mean, so the, the stats are that about 70% of people experience it in their lifetime at some point. Um, and I think what's, what I've always found fascinating about it is that people are like, I have imposter syndrome. Like, that's it. Like, I have it. That's it. <laughs> that's all. It's always going to be like that. And I think that what, what we've come to, you know, there's m many interventions. When we developed the book, it was really about thinking about what are the interventions that are in the literature that, that work and that have been shown statistically to work. And then also with, you know, because it's not like, it's not a mental health issue. It's not a mental health disorder. So it's not that well researched. It's researched enough. Like you were saying, there's not a lot out there about it, but you know, there's not NIH, you can't get an NIH grant for it. You can't get it. So there's not, there's sort of like not enough sort of going on. There's, there's enough, but there isn't enough to feel like there's a systematic way to deal with it. Sure. And so we sort of like thought about sort of what are the, what are the interventions that we know from research? And then also, um, what has worked in our practice that is not covered in the literature. And so that's how we developed this sort of model of sort of being able to face it and deal with it um, is like thinking about what worked and then also what the research has said. And I think, you know, the, what, what's interesting about what you, what you asked is like that, you know, it's, it's never gonna, it's never gonna go away, you know, um, in the sense that you're always gonna potentially get triggered. It's what you do with the trigger. Is that if you let the trigger then force you to overwork, or if you let the trigger let you feel like you don't deserve things or don't deserve your own dreams, that's, that's what changes. Um, and you actually, you'll still have the trigger, but you'll do something differently with it. You know, you'll, it will give you a different piece of information and you will do something differently with the trigger than you would in the past. It sounds like you're talking kind of, Albert Ellis ABC's cognitive behavioral is that kind of the approach that you take in working on this? 
it's it's much more of an integrative approach but yes there is a lot of cbt in the in the workbook there also is a lot of narrative therapy because i often believe in the story and changing the story and how you narrate the story there's also a little bit of dynamic psychodynamic work in it because i do talk about your history and your past and the patterns and so there's a little family systems because i have some genograph genogram stuff in there so we we are sort of like integrative in our approach we want to use what works best as opposed to a form a formula that we feel like you know misses points that i i've always been much more of a probably integrative uh therapist in my approach than i then sort of like one well, I'm not, particular I'm not a therapist but the yeah. Coach, same, yeah. Same, yeah um yep. You, I, the narrative piece I, I find interesting and makes sense because you were mentioning identity before and that idea of like people seem to take this on as an identity and use that labeling, which yeah. has such an important part to play in this. Yes, exactly. And sort of feeling like that it's just, it just is like it's now it's now it's just a part of your identity as opposed to this is a changeable experience. Like this is a, this is something that doesn't have to stay in the same exact form. You know, if, you know, like we were talking, we were talking about the TEDx talk you know, that I had done on imposter syndrome. And I talk about where I was in my career, where like, I, I was letting, I was letting other people dictate the course of my career. I was, you know, letting, I was in a toxic environment that I was paralyzed and I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything to get out of it. I was letting it, I was letting it happen to me. I had choices. Um, and you know, it, I, I think stepping out of that and recognizing my power and realizing I don't have to stay here. I don't have to really live in this imposter syndrome perspective. It really allowed me and freed me to start my practice. And it, it is what birthed my practice was, was quitting that job in, in that dramatic way that I did. Um, it, it sort of forced me to face what I really wanted in life and, and not go under again and not hide underneath the imposter syndrome, but actually live outside of it, which was very hard in the beginning. Um, and became easier over time, but. So that makes me think, you know, have you seen in your work, um, that, you know, kind of readiness for change really plays a role? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, I'm a psychologist and, you know, we, we were trained to, to support resistance and to mm -hmm. embrace resistance. And I don't mind embracing it. Um, in some, it's going to come up in all kinds of moments of change. I just don't want you to completely resist me in the work. Like if you're not ready and you feel like I need sure. to force you there, I'm not, I'm not, we, I'm much more of a person that wants to partner with you. Like yeah. we will be partners together to do this work. Yes. I have a certain expertise and you have a certain expertise. We're going to come together with that expertise, but if you don't want to do the work and you want me to force you to do the, you have to be ready to do the work. Um, cause it's hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have a, slightly different angle question. Um, so I'm also first generation college student and ended up with the great, unbelievable fortune of working with some of the heavyweights and the area of expert performance for my PhD. So I think there were elements of both being a first generation college student and also working with people of that caliber. It was a tremendous learning experience, but coming from the environment or the background that I came from, I also had issues. So have you found, is there any talk in the literature or what you know about being first-generation college student, but also, because it sounds like you going to an Ivy League school might have also been a similar situation where you had the combination of both of those things at, at, at play. So what, how, what impacts do those um, factors have in imposter syndrome? It's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, what, they, what we find is like first-gen women, people of color, 
face like the double bind um, kind of like, or the double kind of like threat of it. So you've experienced it internally and then you experience it externally where people are like, you don't belong here. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it's because you don't fit in in some way, or you don't have the knowledge of the of the institution or how to travel the institution, which is, it's cultural knowledge. Some of it is not just like follow the curriculum. There's some parts of it that are cultural, that are hidden, that, that are not sort of clearly explained. Um, and so like, it, it is really hard for you to sometimes face both of these things. What the literature says and what we know is that it's so important to find similar people on that domain. So find other first gen students who struggled, mm -hmm. sometimes more like far advanced, like a little bit more advanced than you so because they've learned things and they, they, they know sort of resources, but it is helpful because in essence, when you experience um, things that feel unique to that identity that other people are like, ah, oh, that's not what's really happening here. They're, they're kind of like what we, you know, kind of like giving gaslighting you and being like, no, that's not what's really happening. I think you're just insecure or whatever. Somebody will say, yes, that's what's happening. It, what you're experiencing is as a result of, you know, the fact that we don't know and that people are not trying to, to let us into the club. Um, so I think it really helps you to kind of validate your experience and make you feel not alone, not crazy, not, not less than. Um, it is so important to find community around that particular identity that you feel like is the one that people also find to be an imposter. I will also say like, you know, the prestige of like being at Columbia and as a result, the competitive nature of what it was like, I think did really exasperate. It was a very, I was in a very toxic program, um, like a well-known, like it would be written about in the New York Times. That there'd be some issue with faculty members in the New York Times. It was really toxic and very publicly toxic. Um, they were getting sued left and right. It was bad. Wow. Um, and so it, it, created like it, it festered like all all of us were struggling with imposter syndrome and i think in a lot a large way and we were dealing like you said with all these heavy hitters very famous very you know endowed chairs and like you know the 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 grandfathers and in in and fathers of the of the work that we were doing like the first people to write these books and i think you know a lot of us you know were struggling in our imposter syndrome and they were benefiting from it because they were benefiting from our overwork, from our ability to kind of constantly have to prove ourselves. They were benefiting in a lot of ways that they had no interest in us ever feeling a sense of confidence about our skill sets, because then we would feel power and autonomy in ways that would undermine the machine they had going to, to be the big hitters they were, you know, because all big hitters require teams, you know, they require like a, a machine. Um, and we were part of that machine and part of the imposter. And we see it all over the place that sometimes the imposter syndrome benefits an organization. They have no interest in you ever feeling the confidence because it will make you um, authorized in a way that, that affects their bottom line. Yeah. And that reminds I'm, me, sorry, Laura. No. Uh, um, it reminds me there was an Olympic team and they told uh, one thing they shared was they only give their players and I'm not saying it was toxic, but uh, they gave their players two days off at the max. And that, yeah. And that was the reason being is they felt like, well, at least two days at a time, they felt like if they gave them more than two days, they would recognize how intense their training was. <laughs> and so it kind of reminded me of what you said that if uh, for a grad student, if I had more than two days out of it, I might realize how much I'm actually being overworked or how much I didn't like it. Yeah. And it's a great, it's, a, I mean, that is a phenomenal example because oftentimes in these experiences, you're so immersed, you're doing so much, you're there so often, there's no perspective, there's no ability to kind of be like, is this normal? Like, you know, you somehow know it's not, but it's like, you don't even have enough time to kind of get, to gather enough 
community around it to be like, get out of there. You know, like, um, you know, I remember, it's funny that you said, I remember like having a tearful conversation with, tearful, we were both crying. Um, um, a co like a classmate of mine, we were first year and we were, we had had those two days off. It was Christmas break <laughs> and we were both crying and we're like, I hate it. It's so horrible. And he was like, I hate it too. What are we going to do? You can't transfer out of a doctoral program. Um, we're just like crying and like bemoaning our fates um, because we had had those two days off and we were starting to kind of look at like how bad it was. Yeah. And it was. Well, it's interesting. You bring in the, the culture piece, which I told you is fascinating to me. I've worked my whole career and continue to work on, you know, team and organizational culture. And I have always found this interesting. There's so much being written now about culture and that belonging piece is huge. Right. And, you know, you mentioned that sometimes Sometimes it's easy for people to connect to some belonging and get to that shared pur purpose, but so often there's so many different ways that a team is experienced and these different personalities. And I I've worked with some teams where it almost feels like bipolar in the sense of like, you've got some people that are just so confident and uber confident, maybe to, to the point where it's a little like overconfident. Mm -hmm. And then you've got others that are experiencing this lack of confidence, this imposter syndrome and the clashing of that sometimes be so challenging. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes these systems benefit, like work in that way to benefit because in essence, then the people who are insecure then work on behalf of the ones that are really dominant and kind of controlling and kind of can run the roost and so it can really create these really unfair environments where, where, where competence is really about sort of how cocky it can be about the skill as opposed to what is your technical skill set? What, what are you actually doing? What are you actually contributing? Not sort of like how domineering you can be or forceful you can be on a, on a team. And as you mentioned, sometimes the, the kind of unconscious message that's being sent to these people is like you're wrong for feeling this way like why do you feel this way and it and they don't necessarily realize i i don't think that they like make it worse not better right like telling someone you're wrong for feeling this makes them feel it more not yeah. less <laughs> yeah and makes them feel like you don't know them right like there's oftentimes is a response like you don't know what i'm experiencing you don't know like what i'm doing internally to kind of like to cope with this like you don't know that i, I really am incompetent um and so like it do, it's not helpful it doesn't it doesn't wake them up you know it's it's just really just reinforcing of them that people don't know them it's, it's a very solitary experience too like oftentimes you know if we're sharing this we're sharing this like one other person like very close to us we're not telling everyone i have imposter syndrome um generally unless you kind of really are in this point where you're in the in the kind of recovery state of it like you're not really sharing it so it's a very silent very like quiet very you know internal experience the one exception that i've noticed at least in personally is a stats class in grad school everybody eventually about midterm they'll say i don't know like this <laughs> this is hitting me really hard yeah. <laughs> then you realize that's everybody so that's, that's, really the was, <laughs> that's the place where i was killing it i was okay. like i was like you know like you know like i need to i need more i need more information i need more stats you know like i wow. i love stats that's where i was alive like uh I and i was like who's they dragging made me back structural <laughs> equation modeling for my master's and i was like what <laughs> again that's the conundrum right because at least 80% of the class was doing it well. We just all felt like we were 
yeah doing it poorly yeah yeah and then there's always like things like that where it's like it's a really good point around sort of like uh, that your imposter syndrome can be domain specific it can be you can feel excellent and exceptional about something and then also feel like in a particular area like this is where i am fraudulent so it can be domain specific it doesn't have to be like everything you do you're an imposter you know i was also going to ask about that because so uh kevin mentioned you know the the background he has and um we both met because we were studying a research project looking at expert performance under uh anders ericsson right the world's Mm -hmm. expert on experts and um one of the things I remember from some of the articles that Anders wrote was about the idea of that some domains, it's actually really hard to identify what an expert actually is, right? In something like stats, it's a little bit easier, right? Because there is right. a tangible- quantifiable, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you found in your work on that in terms of imposter syndrome? Does it show up the same or is that intangible work? Does that tend to bring it out a little more? Well, it's a great it's a great point because what they find with um impo- with imposter syndrome is that people have typically have a really high eq um like really high emotional quotient but that is one of those intangibles right and so oftentimes they they dismiss their their emotional their emotional intelligence skills as um manipulation or that they they're they're conniving or like that they they interpret them in these ways that are don't necessarily value the skill set of re- of relational you know, competence. And so that is oftentimes where they're often really, really skilled, but often find it to be like, it's not really a skill and it's not worth anything, or it's being used in some kind of like, you know, maleficent way, you know, and some kind of, you know, bad, I'm using it negatively, you know, so that I think is one of those places. And I think the more intangible, I think the, the often the more difficult for an imposter, you know, so like you were saying earlier, it took me seven years to feel like I was confident in my field like coaching and counseling, they're very amorphous. Like, like, you know, someone will come in with a set of goals, but the goals are, you know, some of them may be concrete, especially in career, but um, also some of them may be very amorphous. I want to be a better leader. I want to be a stronger team mate. Those are, those are things you really can't quantify. And so it becomes hard to know whether you are making an impact or not, or like eventually you get to feel, you get to understand what that's like, but in the, in the very beginning and in the middle, it can be hard. And even sometimes now I'm just like, how am I contributing? Like, <laughs> yeah. I remember a client one time telling me like, she was like, you know, I, I, I sometimes I come here, I laugh, I cry, I think about things. And she's like, it just feels like a conversation, but I keep getting better, you know, <laughs> you know, and when, whatever she was struggling with. And so I think it's like, sometimes I have to remember that, right? It's just, it is a conversation, it's a skilled conversation. Um, well, it's funny, I actually had a client not too long ago, it was a couple months ago of now maybe, was actually in a, meet, in a meeting, he was like, how do you define a good session? And I was like, huh, <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> it is a good question. <laughs> and- so now that you're considered an expert or now that you are an expert on imposter syndrome, do you feel a sense of dread or yes. You know, like I said, it doesn't go away. So yes, I do. Like I just did, I just did an article for like a, a, a bigger magazine and I was just like, is that really true? Is that not really true? I started questioning myself. I was like, of course it's true. I've done, I've done the reading, but I had to kind of catch myself because I sort of can get into that space of like, well, you know, have I looked at the research recently? And, you know, I can get sort of like kind of anxious about, you know, sort of like look at being out there. And actually when we were doing the TED talk, 
like we were getting ready to do the TED talk, I was in a, a, a state of like imposter syndrome and performance anxiety. I hadn't had in a really long time. And my husband had noticed it and he was like, he's like, we got to face this. He's like, we got to structure your prep because you are avoiding and you're going to sabotage yourself. Um, and you know, he was right. And I had to like, I had to, and it was so painful to do those first, like really structured sessions where we were working in, in structured format. Cause the anxiety was so like at my throat, like I could barely kind of function, but eventually it got easier over time. But you know, it does come back at you, especially like the more high threat, the more high performance, the more, like the more it comes to the surface. The sabotage piece is really interesting because, you know, in sport and performance, like we talk about attribution theory a lot, right? And really trying to mm-hmm. analyze that, like how we make sense, right, of the kind of causes of, of successes and failures. Do you find that a lot of, of people you work with self-sabotage in that way? Because if I if I fail and didn't do everything I could, then I can kind of blame it on that. I and don't have to blame it on the, the scarier thought, which is I'm not good enough. Yeah. Well, interestingly with imposter syndrome, it's actually what we call imposter cycle two. So it's like, get the high performance, like, you know, activity, like you have the performance anxiety, self-sabotage and procrastinating or doing whatever you are to kind of like not do what you need to do. And then usually either get positive or mixed feedback, usually the mixed feedback and then with any negative piece of the mixed feedback, you then are like, see, I am a fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of like saying you're not, a fraud, it actually is evidence that you are a fraud. And then you, re- you then don't internalize anything positive that came from it. And then you re-engage the cycle all over again because you didn't bother to take in the good feedback and the, and the positive experiences or the learning around like what you did in the self-sabotage moment that could be altered. Sure. In hindsight, one of the worst things that ever happened to me was I was invited to give a talk at a research lab without knowing that I was on a job interview. It was a strange situation. Oh. And <laughs> I guess literally a strange situation. <laughs> and so I should have known that the I probably shouldn't give too many details, but there was a very high, uh, a very powerful person that joined us for lunch and all this stuff. And I didn't put the two and two together. And so uh, finally, like a administrative assistant said are you on a job interview I said I don't think so and then only later <laughs> did I find out and okay, so I think I, you I, are <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, I think that really messed me up because uh, it was over a decade ago but it really uh, almost in the sense that because I you know you you think more about what you're going to say or uh, yeah. have better prepared lines and that kind of stuff that sounds awful but um, you're at least prepared yeah you're prepared and uh, so just thinking that they didn't like me unpolished, so to speak, really, I think, messed me up for yeah, a long time. Yeah, you're like time. true form, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it was, uh, I'm a laid back guy. And so when they were telling me these cool, cool research stories, I would, you know, I might just, I'm, my only response might be cool, which I thought it was a yeah. cool study, but I, you don't say that on a job <laughs> interview. And so I'm like, that really uh, threw me a loop so yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and I think it's a it's interesting right because um though you're probably in your most natural and relaxed state and you know you know probably how I would have reframed it for myself might have been like look they didn't really want the real me like that's who I am yes but I could have come with a performance but in the end I'd, I've been hanging out and been chill that's who I am mm-hmm. um instead of like we're you know like kind of like getting caught up because I, I you know I've, I felt that before like this the feeling of like well you know, like I it wasn't as clean as I could be, but also it, it's me. 
you know, like I, I'm, I'm never going to be the person who has that perfectly fluid speech. I'm never going to be the person who doesn't use ums and uhs and likes, like that's not who I am naturally. And, and it's sort of starting to appreciate the lack of perfection in it, mm-hmm. you know, because that's such a big thing for imposters is like perfectionism and everything's got to be perfect. And, you know, um, to be valuable, it has to be perfect. And I've, that's something I've always been working on for myself is really starting to appreciate like who I am in raw form, you know? Well, I'm, uh, I, they ended up hiring someone. It was a near Ivy school and mm-hmm. they ended up hiring someone that graduated from their school. So I always end the story <laughs> in my mind that they really wanted one of their own. So, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but it's, it's funny you said that about embracing the perfection. Uh, my first year of teaching, and this is kind of an aside, but um, I had these senior professors come in and tell me you have to do A, B, C, D. You have to be really stern in the beginning and all of this stuff. And I was miserable. The students were miserable. It wasn't me, the way they were yep. asking me to be. And eventually I made the decision after some really difficult class sessions. I said, I can't do this. I don't know if they're seeing it or they're just reacting to it, but I started becoming myself um, in the classroom and it, it's made all the difference in the world. And I'm glad I learned that early on. Yeah, It's a great, great point because one of the underlying like hallmarks is like intellectual inauthenticity um, uh, in posture, of imposter syndrome. And it, it is so important to find your authentic voice in the work. Um, and it's part of like we were talking about being an expert is like, you know, doing your 10,000 hours or whatever. You, you eventually find your own voice in the work. And I think that's such an important piece of, of it and sort of, you know, finding and that that voice doesn't look like other people and that it, it is imperfect, but it is still, it still knows what it's talking about. It's still skilled. Like it's sort of that process of coming to expertise. It doesn't look like perfection. That looks like the way that you take up the work. I remember I had a supervisor say to me once, um, you're going to learn all these theories and all this, all this knowledge. You're going to, you're going to gain all these like skill sets and, you know, be very concrete about how you're picking them up. And then you're going to forget them. And your job is to forget them and for them to live inside of you. And I think that that is, was so, I always kind of think back on that when I like, oh, I still sound like an idiot. You know, I'm like, no, I'm taking it up in the way that it is resonant for me, which is different than what, in the way it is resonant for others. And you mentioned the, the choice piece earlier, which I think is a huge piece of this. I had a client recently say, do I have to be someone different? And I was like, do you want to be someone different? Yes. Like- <laughs> yes. Yeah. And sometimes you do. Sometimes there is something you want to shift and change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's about really bringing your own voice to the work, you know, and it's really, it's sort of nuanced. It really depends on your situation and what's going on. Lauren can attest when we first graduated, uh, working in Erickson's lab, 2020 would come do stories and all of this unusual. It's kind of like uh, growing, which I didn't grow up in a wealthy household, but that's kind of what I imagine that being. You have all these resources, you have all this attention. And then I graduate and I'm expecting the halo to continue around me, which was there during grad school as Anders Erickson's student. And people are kind of like, move along kid, you know, you're trying to get to him. (laughs) And so it really took, and I think this uh, podcast is actually an extension of that evolution. It, I really spent the next, I guess, seven or eight years, I forgot how long it's been, cultivating my own voice and cultivating my own contribution and it was only and it's a really good thing that it happened because only then was I actually ready for prime time as they would say it was my own voice that I had to develop before anybody really wanted to hear it and 
I'm not nearly as famous uh, or well-known as Anders Ericsson and probably never will be, but at least now I'm bringing my perspective uh, to what we're doing. So, Yeah. And I think it's, it's such a great point, like to really, to really, that even under the umbrellas of like, cause it, it is very common also for people with imposter syndrome to, to seek out mentors who provide an external validation, who are like stars. So, cause you feel like that shine will be helpful for you, but it, it, to get outside of that shine and to, and to find your own voice, to find your own path, to find, because, you know, like, and I remember it being in those situations and, you know, like being at like conferences and presenting a paper and, or, or like, you know, and then people would be like, where's, you know, Dr. So-and-so, you know, like, where is he? I want to talk to him. And I'd be like, I wrote this thing. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, um, but not like being invisible in a lot of ways. And like, you can continue the invisibility. You can kind of continue that pathway of invisibility go and look, look for some other star to be connected to, or you can find your own star. And your star will be different and your star will, will, will have its own shine and will do its own thing. And, you know, I think it's, it's such an important path, I think, for people with imposter syndrome is to find your own star, to find your own path, to find your own way to do this. Um, Has anything surprised it, you? I'm sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to pick up the conference piece because it's funny, you know, I think about it, like, I think for years, I always felt so comfortable going out and doing work with clients. Like I'd go do workshops and I'd go work with teams and I felt like I felt so comfortable there. And then I'd have to go present to my own community. And that's when the imposter syndrome would come in. Right. <laughs> right. You that was your domain of like trigger. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm like, now I'm just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> but I think right. it, I don't, it's not, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that, you know, it's interesting yeah, to finally get to that anymore. place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because like oftentimes too with our peers, it, we feel most vulnerable because they are the most steeped in the knowledge, they're most steeped in the literature. They can challenge yeah. you in ways that people in the ordinary world can't challenge us. And so they can be particularly threatening and also can their implication of your status and, you know, like, you know, how, you know, it's, it's all there. It's all present in all of that work. So yes, it can be there. Probably risky bringing this up, but my, my current university, they brought in a speaker that was advertised to speak on Anders Ericsson's research. <laughs> and I thought, this is unusual. Like, yeah. uh, you have an in-house speaker? <laughs> You're like, interesting. Yeah. I wonder how much he got paid to come in here to do that. Yeah, so it was yeah. unusual to see that. Um, has, any, <laughs> has anything surprised you uh, in looking at imposter syndrome? I mean, I, I think what, what surprised me most, I think, is how large the community is and how, like, it's been, you know, I'm, I'm out there and talking about it and, like, it just, it resonates with so many people and so many people may have never even heard the term before, but they're like, oh my God, you're like reading my mind. You're like, they feel like you got, you have some kind of like way into their souls. Um, but it, but so many people feel so seen by it. Um, and that feels really enlightening because in, and really, it feels really good to see that because even, even I, who knew the concept and when it was, when I was experiencing it, like in the very beginning of, like in that very beginning of the story I tell in the TEDx, I didn't know it was imposter syndrome. I just thought I was struggling. I was a little struggling. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, I lost my path. That's what I was sort of framing it as. And I think once I kind of framed it in a very different way, I was able to kind of do something about it very thoughtfully and strategically. And I think that, that I think is the piece that I, 
when I look back at the story is like getting a language to it, understanding it, understanding the mechanics of it, how it works, how you're participating in it, and then being able to dismantle it. Like looking back at it, it was the best thing I ever did for my life because it, it changed the course of my life. Yeah. And I'm, I want the listeners to check out your book, but do you have advice that you could uh, share for anybody experiencing imposter syndrome? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can, that you must and should do. Um, so much of it has to do with sort of tackling some of the automatic ways that you have been thinking, that you've been engaging, and, and not treat them as automatic. Do not react to the thought. Do not, like, give yourself a beat and think about sort of what is the way that I should, I should narrate this, even if it doesn't feel authentic. Like in the beginning, it's not going to feel authentic to say, no, I really do deserve to be here. You know, it's going to feel like completely fake, but eventually you're going to be able to train, like almost regroup the neural pathways to really help you to think in ways that really are supportive of the truth and the reality of who you are. So it's really to me about inter interventional, like being interventional about the stuff and not just letting it happen to you, but like proactively engaging in the ways that you're reacting to things that you're thinking, like it's all about sort of being a participant in it and not just letting it happen to you. I think that's so much a part of imposter syndrome is like, it's like now you want to be alive in your life in the, in your, in the ways that you manage your thoughts. Like it's all about sort of that piece of it is like um, no longer being passive and like this process. You know, I think so. I asked you about the readiness for change piece. Cause in my experience working <laughs> with clients on this, um, it's so uncomfortable for them. So one of the, the exercises we do sometimes is they, they literally hate me for this is that I deserve to be here list. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it, they come either way. If we do it together or if I kind of give it as homework, they are like, I hate you. Like this is, yeah. like, this is the most awful thing you've ever had me do. Um, and so I always find like they have to be ready for that, but also like be ready for the discomfort sometimes yeah. that really can be, especially at the start of this. And, and so it feels very paradoxical for it to be uncomfortable to feel like you deserve right? things. But, you know, in <laughs> imposter syndrome, it's, it's that is what it feels like. It feels very uncomfortable to take any accolade, any praise. It feels like because you, you attribute it to mistake, luck, or relationship. So you're like, it's just, it indicts me as, as doing something bad or wrong, as opposed to the fact that it, it is truly my accomplishment to hold on to, you know, my, my kids fence and, um, they, they fence in a, in a, in a club where there are many, many Olympians, many, <laughs> like, and they're just everyday people to them. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, you know, when I talk to these, you know, Olympians and I ask them about sort of like when they come back from a tournament and like, people will be like, you know, oh, congratulations on, you know, and they're just very like standoffish and very, and so, and a lot of them struggle with imposter syndrome and a lot of them say like, well, it just feels like if I ever take that in, I'm going to lose my edge, that something's going to go away that I, that I have, I, ha I need to always feel like I don't deserve it or it's not, you know, I just barely got it. I, you know, I've got to fight, you know, there's a, there's a perspective that sometimes makes it really hard to let go of imposter syndrome that in the imposter syndrome got you where you are. Yeah. That if you let go of it, everything's going to go away. And so, like, it's a very interesting thing that, you know, it becomes like this enemy and ally. And so. Um, is that related to the, so we've had, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is that related to the idea that we've had several guests mention the idea that please tell me no? Um, is it, is that tied together in the sense that I might not feel like I deserve it, but you also can't tell me I can't have it? 
<laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think there there is something there about like sort of in the competitive mindset around sort of like be, being denied and fighting and, and that it's very hard to be top dog. Like it's very hard to be the top athlete because the only place to go down is, is, is the only place to go is down. And so there is like this yeah. kind of fighting sort of perspective. But it, what I also sometimes notice um, when they're talking to me is about sort of their inability to also take up their accomplishments. Because when all this ends, they also have to have lives and careers and if they don't feel like they have anything to offer, they disappear. Like they, they're, they're like the amazing things that they do become like something, a relic of the past. They don't know how to take that into the next place for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that athletic identity, right, becomes so becomes and sometimes by necessity at that level becomes so strong and the the only identity or the only perceived identity right and so yeah when they have to transition that can be hard um yeah. there's also you're kind of getting on something that peaks the thought about you know the interesting science behind what you have to lose versus what you have to gain right and and how that can sometimes be a challenge for us and, and be something that can be leveraged yeah. i had a I had a, a question too about um, there's been some discussion in the literature on different types of imposter syndrome. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I talk about them because they're, they are part of popular, like, you know, popular press and popular. Um, I don't necessarily believe in them. I, mm -hmm. I, in the sense that I think people are, no one person falls in, in any of those archetypes. People yeah. are blends of them. So I think it's helpful as a reference point to be like, oh, I do take up that kind of role of like superwoman or superman. Mm -hmm. um, or I do kind of think I'm sometimes a natural genius or like, I, you know, like, so I, I think it can be helpful, but oftentimes people find themselves like, well, they're like, that's not quite all of it. Yep. So I do, we didn't really talk about it a lot in the book because it, is, it isn't something that I think is like totally helpful. But when I, when I do my stuff on like Instagram, we do talk about it a little bit because I think it helps people to locate in the beginning sort of how the role might take up but we do talk a ton about in the book around sort of like how it's so important to take on new and uncomfortable roles when you have imposter syndrome like mm. the role of the learner or like the role you know the role of the person who is following like to kind of get outside of of these kind of more you know typical roles where we feel much more comfortable even in our imposter syndrome but don't don't let us grow um mm -hmm. they actually prevent us from growing and keep this kind of sort of narrowly kind of boxed in what have you learned about yourself through all of this <laughs> um you know that yeah i think i've learned a lot of things about myself i i, <laughs> I think one of the the things is that you know um you know, my husband always says something, he says this famous quote that was in the TEDx talk, is, which is like, you know, when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I think that I, I have learned that I've been able to see my skills and my abilities a lot clearer, um, kind of coming out of my own imposter syndrome and figuring out how I want to use them for my own dreams. Um, and I think that's been a piece of my learning is really figuring out how, instead of using it in service of somebody else's dreams or somebody else's path or somebody else's ways that they'll, they'll, they'll think I'm worthy. I, I use them now to kind of do the things that are meaningful and, you know, make my life feel full. And so it feels very different. Um, and so that has been really nice. And, it, and as a result, it's brought me a lot of the things I dreamed of. Like I got, I did write the book, you know, I, I, you know, she, she thought I would never be a good writer. And I, I am a, a, a writer, you know, <laughs> See, <laughs> it's given me a lot of like, um, 
comfort in more of my public speaking. I used to be, I used to be very fearful of public speaking. I've, I've become much more comfortable with that. I started to face a lot of the fears and the things that I was running from um, as a result of being in my, being in my imposter syndrome. I, I kind of have felt a lot more breath to my, my poss- the possibilities of my life. And so. I love the title of your book, right? It just kind of says it all, like what you're trying to help people do, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, it feels, it's very mission-driven for me. It feels like, you know, I would love everybody to really be able to own their greatness and in a way that feels really healthy and really, like, where they can really live in their dreams, whatever those dreams are, but to use the skills that they already have and the things that they already have inside of them. So it's, it is sort of like a bit of a mission-driven thing. Like, we're so I want people to recoil less when they do those activities about gratefulness and like what, what deservingness, or like recoil less when I ask them, you know, what, what is your greatness? You know, like um, <laughs> I think that I think I want people to recoil less and not feel like they have to hide that parts of themselves less, the beautiful shiny parts of themselves. It sounds like too you're trying to get people in part to to do what the title says own your greatness but also to not be fearful of pursuing greatness and trying to develop it yeah yes yeah and I think that it and I think that's you know when Kevin asked like sort of what I've learned about myself is like I I don't know if I ever thought I could be great at anything I really I just knew how to put down my head down and work um I knew how to I knew how to do that but I didn't ever think I'd be great at anything now I feel like I can really own that and really I really feel like I am a I'm a great therapist I'm a you know great coach like I I really understand things with I can own that in a way that is not about like narcissism or grandiosity or being better than anyone else but owning my own experience and being able to figure out then what do I want to do with it you know I think of what many people fail to realize is that in the experiences I'm gaining lately uh, companies will spend music companies for example will spend five hundred thousand dollars promoting something and if one is personally afraid to promote themselves. What they're not realizing is that every person is promotion is important for everyone, I guess. Um, yeah. And so just yeah. being able to see yourself for what you are. Um, in other words, don't be afraid to yeah. uh, sing your own accolades. Um, <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's what yeah, everybody it's, does. Yeah. And I think to be able to, you know, do that in a way that, you know, helps you to kind of reach the goals that you have for your own life is like, you know, it's by hiding it, by running it, if you don't get to express it, you don't get to, it doesn't get to be visible. Someone's not going to come looking for it. You have to kind of be able to express it. Not in this society. People are not going to come looking for it. You have to be able to kind of share it, put it out there, um, you know, be able to then also receive, you know. So what are your thoughts on people who say that they don't want to or, or feel uncomfortable owning that greatness because they want to be humble? Yeah, I mean, I think you you can be both. It can be the both and. You can be humble, and you can still own your greatness. It doesn't have to be like we. I think we have a lot of a lot of times in our society we have this notion of like narcissism as be people who own greatness. And narcissism is a much more complex psychological phenomenon than that. That's not how it develops. Like, um, and you're not going to become narcissistic by thinking you're great at certain things. Um, and to being able to own that. It's also at the same time, very important to be able to own the things you're growing at. I'm still struggling. I'm still growing. I don't hide that. I'm always talking about the ways in which I actively struggle or like, you know, because I think it's important. You can be both. You can own greatness and struggle, you know, and still have a ton of things you're working on, you know? So those things can coexist. They don't, they're not dichotomous. You know, they're not dichotomous in that way. Mm -hmm. That kind of 
pulls back in what you were saying earlier about finding your authentic voice and then po people probably uh, that resonates with people that you're actually putting yourself out there in its entirety that you do struggle you have things that you still want to work on as far as yeah that goes. yeah and I think it's honest because I think that I want people to be able to do that too I want I want you to feel like you know like it's it's I don't want to create some perfect picture of me I'm not perfect I'm screw up all the time and you know I have all these things that I, I'm actively working on um but I still I can still also feel like I'm really good at things and I'm I'm you know kind of like you know owning my greatness in those ways and yet those things can coexist and you no know, actually to, I, I feel like in order to live a full life they always have to exist until you're in the grave like you always have to be learning you always have to be pushing yourself you always have to kind of like be wanting more and also be able to respect the things that you have been able to achieve so i'm curious your thoughts on some of the commentary surrounding some of these younger generations and what at least in in my field we're kind of seeing a lot in sport too in particular with this idea of kind of the fallout of the self-esteem movement that started in like 60s and 70s of thinking from all that research like you have to make kids and people feel good about themselves not realizing the challenging side of that <laughs> at various points so what are your thoughts on the generation that's grown up in that yeah and I think like you know it is potential it is problematic you know because you have to be able to take feedback you know and be able to grow in a way that doesn't crumble you and so um you know i think I, i'm concerned for their skill level and their resilience um because you do need that you need to be ability to take feedback to you know have hard times have hard moments um and that they don't go away in a snap like that they sometimes are over a long period of time and that you have to be able to you know, be able to persevere through them. And I think it, it is skill. You have to, and so sometimes I find myself in my work teaching people how to, how to cope with feedback and how to, you know, deal with things that probably should have been taught to them very early on, but now I have to work on and teach them how to do that um, very concretely because it feels often, there's, there's a lot of fragilization of that generation, I think. And I think it was a great idea to think, you know, to say all these good things, but you also have to yeah. And that's, you know, we talk about that with like some of the common reasons why people develop imposter syndrome. You know, one of them is that you were considered like the, you know, the gifted one, the, the smart one, but that meant you didn't have to work hard. You know, so you have to be able to teach both like that, you know, you can be gifted at things and then also, you know, also have to work hard. You can make mistakes. You can be not top of the game. You have to teach people to be able to kind of tolerate all kinds of different circumstances. And I think, you know, protecting them from that doesn't help their resiliency and you know you see it you do see you know it's not everybody in the generation but you do see it sort of culturally in that generation to not be able to tolerate um difficult moments or be strategic around how to handle them yeah in, in undergrad my psychology professor used to tell us that she felt like we were in an age of protection <laughs> like now we're <laughs> in an age of like over uber protection <laughs> yeah yeah I remember being a professor and like you know having students like crying because they didn't feel like they were ready for their exam and it, it's like this is you know this is not you know this is not acceptable you have to, you knew the exam was you knew how you know you, you can't come into the classroom to cry and want an exemption when all the other 29 students are sitting here trying to to, to excel in it so that there, yeah, I did see, I did see things, you know, happen as a professor, like where I didn't see that, like, you know, five or six years ago, I didn't see it. Nobody would dare do anything like that. But now there was sort of like this idea that, you know, if I don't, you know, if I'm hurting or upset, like, you know, you need to cater to me. And it's like, it's, it's not the, it's not the way the world should work or it's not the way the world 
it does work, you know, because mm -hmm. you know you really just also need to be resilient. I want to return for a second to you mentioned you one might be gifted, but they'll still have to work. And one of the questions we ask every episode is where people fall on the nature versus nurture debate. Um, so nature, the extreme view, uh, the extreme view of nature would be that you have to really work at nothing. Uh, the extreme nurture view is, yeah. yeah, you have nothing. You have to work at everything to make it appear. Then there's everything in the middle. If you were to put a percentage or just a view on that nature versus nurture spectrum or continuum, what would you place it? I think I'd probably have to go down the classic psychology route, which is 50-50. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but, you know, part of it is sort of like what, you know, like sort of genetic and down, like in ter terms of like, you know, think gifts that you have, there are certain things that are kind of biological, you know, sort of certain things that are, you know, definitely connected to that piece of it. And then there are certain things that are completely contextual, but I do feel like, um, that your environment can enhance a lot of those things and that the that you know clearly the biological piece you know we can't do much about but the environment piece we can do a ton about um and that the environment really really matters and can make the difference between somebody who can really use those gifts versus somebody who you know doesn't have a shot at using them at all even though they have these amazing gifts so and i and i also believe really that it is it is it is not just the family that is it is the community it is all of us as people that need to help provide people the opportunity to have the right context um so we i i very much believe that i don't believe in the individualistic notion i don't believe anybody makes it on their own nobody makes it on their own everyone has supports and helps and pe there's there's people along the way even if they don't include them in their narrative nobody ever makes it alone uh, anything that we haven't asked that you feel the listeners should know? I don't know. This has been really fun. <laughs> it's been a very fun intellectual exercise and like it's been a fun conversation. Thank you. Uh, and what would you say is the biggest takeaway from your story? Just that it is changeable, that the experience of imposter syndrome is changeable and that if you can change it what's ahead of you is like unbelievable like what is ahead of you is beyond what you could possibly imagine because you probably are so much more amazing than you ever even ever think so that's what it's been like you know it's been a really amazing journey to be away from it you know to kind of have it in a in a different experience like it's not running me anymore you know wow well i i agree it's been a fascinating interesting discussion and uh we appreciate your being on the show so much no, you're so welcome. This is a ton of fun. <laughs> Path to is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by the Path to all rights reserved.